One of the things I've found through pastoral ministry is church people believe some bizarre and unbiblical things. Folk religion, civil religion. I've heard people, church people, inside these walls within the last year say things like this to me. Carl, you know when people die, they become angels. I can't tell you how often I've heard people say this at funerals, and they think this will be a comfort to the ones who are still here. To open your mouth and say this reveals profound ignorance of Scripture because people are always people, and humans and angels are always angels. They don't morph into one or the other. Perhaps the most bizarre, just in the last 12 months that it's been said to me, is a woman came and said, Carl, what's your spirit animal? And I said, excuse me? She said, you know, your totem. And I said, okay, I do know what a totem is because I'm from Oklahoma and I'm part Indian. But a totem in pagan religions is usually an animal that represents people. So this older woman asked me what my spirit animal was and I said, I, I guess a golden retriever. I don't know. She said, oh, mine's a red bird. And she said, I've decorated my house in red birds so I can be reminded of my totem. But perhaps the most troubling one that I hear so often is people say, you know, Carl, I really take issue with your view of sin because I really think all people are basically good. The Gospel Coalition in a recent survey this year says 46% of evangelical Christians, people who say they believe the Bible, believe Jesus is the only Savior, 46% of evangelical Christians believe and teach others that even though the Bible repeatedly, loudly, teaches the sinfulness of our core being from texts like Romans 3, that we all are basically good. What does Scripture say about those who hold such errors? It's interesting that Paul in his pastoral epistles to Timothy repeats over and over again what to do with them. Paul, for example, tells Timothy, the pastor of the church in Ephesus in 1 Timothy 4-7, listen to the active verbs, reject old wives' tables, fables. And then he says in 1 Timothy 6, Timothy, avoid, that's the active verb there, avoid idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge by professing it some have strayed concerning the faith. And then again in 2 Timothy, Paul keeps this up because apparently Timothy had some people held to crazy ideas in his church too. Because Paul writes to Timothy and says there, shun, that's the active verb there, shun idle babblings because these messages spread like cancer. Why is Paul so insistent on this to reject, shun, avoid? He says... In 2 Timothy 4, as he's closing up his epistle, some of the last words he writes, he says, These are people who will not endure sound doctrine. They heap up teachers for themselves, having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and turn to fables. Many church people even believe deeply erroneous propositions about Jesus Christ, his person, and his work not grasping that believing speculations, old wives' tales, folklore, can be profoundly injurious to your soul. I want to do, and this is dangerous, I want to do something very unusual today. I want to expound an article of the Apostles' Creed 
And I want to expand, expound the text before us in 1 Peter 3, our, our next text. Now, when I say our next text, if this is your first time with us, let me give a tiny bit of explanation. Our habit, we're not slavish about it, but the normal pattern is on Lord's Day mornings, we preach the next text. We're preaching through New Testament books, consecutive exposition, and we are preaching through the book of 1 Peter now, and we've come to 1 Peter 3. And in Lord's Day evenings, we close out the Lord's Day, keeping the whole day holy, by preaching through Old Testament text, typically. And so tonight, we will be in Joshua 7, preaching the next text. But what I want you to see this morning is these two things, and again, I, I'm not stating that I'm one of the flying Walindas and this is that dangerous or anything like that, but this is unusual, especially for us, but these two things are profoundly related. We're going to look at an article of the Creed, of the Apostles' Creed, and then 1 Peter 3. And what you will need open before you, if Episcopalians can do it, we can do it, is you'll need your Bible and your hymnal. And Episcopalians usually juggle three books, and so just doing two is simple. But you'll need your Bible, and you'll need your Trinity Psalter hymnal open before you. But we desperately need the help of the Holy Spirit to understand these things. And so let's ask for that now. Our Father, we thank you for the word. It's clarity, authority, inerrancy, and that it is our sure foundation. We confess by our unaided human reason we can't comprehend these words. We need your Holy Spirit to open our eyes. And we thank you that this text reveals our Savior. Drive these words deep into our minds and hearts. It is vanity if only a man speaks to us. So by your Spirit, through your words, speak to us now. We cast ourselves again upon you, confident that you will give us light and understanding. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want to speak first of all about an article from the Creed, the Apostles' Creed, at least once a month, sometimes more frequently. We use the Apostles' Creed as our corporate confession of faith in Lord's Day worship as we did just a few moments ago. The, the text of it is staring at you in your bulletin. That can be our third document that we juggle. It's looking at you right now. This creed has been confessed by Roman Catholics and Protestant alike for well over 1,500 years. Today, this day, easily more than a billion people around the world will gather to worship the triune God, and they will join their voices together to confess their living faith their most deeply held commitments and their principles by using the words of the historic Apostles' Creed. And by so doing, they join the church of at least the last two millennia who have believed and confessed these core truths. But many folks who walk in our doors for the first time, who come from non-creedal, non-confessional churches, are confused by the language of these wonderful creeds, specifically two of the 17 or 18, depending on how you number them, two of the 17 or 18 affirmations. Many are confused by that little phrase. You can look at it across the page in your bulletin. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Now, Catholic simply means small c, universal. And by that, we're not stating that we are somehow becoming Roman Catholics. We're stating that we believe that Jesus is building a worldwide universal church made up of the elect from every age and place and ethnicity. But the second article of the creed that gives people difficulty, and hopefully we can 
give a little help for that today is the phrase that says, speaking of the work of Christ, he descended into hell. We will seek to carefully explain our understanding of this phrase today and hopefully show you where it's rooted in Scripture. Now what we should do is clear the deck of the faulty views of what the Apostles' Creed means when it says, he descended into hell. A variety of views have been advanced over the last 1,800 views, the last 200, 2,000, 1,800 years. The first is, people will say, well, by this, we believe that Christ went to hell to suffer more, more suffering than he suffered upon the cross. This is called the punishment view. And this states that Jesus went to hell after his death, underwent further suffering on behalf of our sins to finish the work of redemption. By the way, this view is the view of the prosperity gospel preachers. If you pull up a YouTube of Kenneth Copeland or Kenneth Hagen, I get them confused, so I just call them Copenhagen. But <laughs> if you pull up a YouTube, you can see one of them or both of them teaching this view. Now, we should refute that very quickly. This view teaches that Christ's sinless life and atoning death were insufficient to redeem his people, which is absolutely contrary to Jesus' own words when he cried out in John 19.30, it is finished. No more suffering needed, no more dying needed, no more bloodshed needed. It is finished, paid in full. There's another faulty view of the descent. It says, Christ went to hell to preach a second chance to those who died unrepentant. Now, the refutation of this is easy. No text in scripture teaches any sort of second chance after death of salvation, and it violates the justice of God. Jesus himself spoke of this justice in John 3, 18, when he said, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The apostles taught against the idea of some second chance after death when they said in Hebrews 9, it is appointed unto men once to die, then the judgment. Jesus also described this finality in the, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16 when Abraham in heaven said to the rich man, between us and you in hell, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Another view, and now we're getting closer to orthodoxy, a view taught by Augustine in his letter 164, 1600 years ago, states that Christ went to hell to pronounce his victory to Satan. Augustine said this is when Jesus formally condemned Satan and his demons. This was when the strong man was bound. This was done as the resurrected Lord. But the view that I want to assert today is not only the historic view of the Reformed and Protestant, but this is now when you will need your hymnal. I'm going to stop for just a second so you can turn to page 945. And I want you to look at our confessional view. We actually have a creedal, a confessional view. Every minister, every elder, every deacon must subscribe to this. This is our public theology. So when anybody asks, what do you Presbyterians mean by he descended into hell? 
we mean what you see in larger catechism question 50. And what we assert is that Jesus, by being buried, descended into the realm of the dead, Sheol, the grave. So notice what larger catechism 50 says. Wherein consisted Christ's humiliation after his death? The answer comes, Christ's humiliation after his death consisted in his being buried and continued, continuing in the state of the dead and under the power of death till the third day, which hath been otherwise expressed in these words, he descended into hell. So you notice what we just saw. Our larger catechism, for the last 380 years, we've had a confessional understanding of the descent. The descent consists in these truths. Jesus died. Jesus was buried. Jesus continued under the power of death physically until the third day. Now let me separate that out and make it simpler for you. We believe something about the body of Jesus and the soul of Jesus. We know where the body of Jesus was on Friday evening, day one. We know where the body of Jesus was all day Saturday, day two. And we know where the body of Jesus was at the beginning of day three, early Sunday morning. His human body was under the power of death, lying in the tomb, awaiting Sunday morning when it would be raised by the power of the Holy Spirit. We know where Jesus' soul was. So we're accounting for the whole person of Christ. We know where his soul was. In Jesus' case, of course, his departed human soul would go to the estate of the blessed. For didn't he say to the thief on the cross who died repenting and believing that they would be together that day in paradise? He wasn't speaking of his body. His body would remain in the tomb for three days. He was speaking of his soul. And so when we speak of the descent, we are saying, look carefully once again at larger catechism 50. We're stating this is what happened to his body. He was buried. He continued in the state of the dead and under the power of death till the third day. Now, how do we apply this? I haven't even looked at the text of scripture yet, but our creed. Well, I would say that confessing this creed links us ties us, binds us to the historic church of the last 1,800 years. We join that great cloud of witnesses spoken of in Hebrews 12 of God's elect throughout the ages who all believe and confess the same truth of orthodoxy. But what we should also recognize we are confessing when we use the Apostles' Creed and speak of the descent is Jesus has humbled himself to the very lowest place. Because the text we'll look at in 1 Peter 3 and the Apostles' Creed, echoing it, speak of his humiliation. Listen to what our shorter catechism states. Wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born, that in a low condition made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, the cursed death of the cross, in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. The end of Christ's humiliation was his being laid out in a grave and remaining there for three days. Another thing that we should recognize that the creed teaches us is we have no reason to fear death because Jesus has endured death, the grave, Sheol, 
for us. The early church frequently spoke of the victory march of the church. This text was read at Christian funerals. 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's to deal with one side of the coin, our creedal affirmation. Hopefully every time from now on, when we confess the Apostles' Creed, you'll think, and I know what we mean by that. We believe what Larger Catechism 50 says. We believe that Jesus died, was buried, and continued under the power of death for three days. But what we need to address, much more importantly, even than explaining the creed, is the text. Look at 1 Peter 3. Now it's where you can replace your creed with your Bible. And I will tell you that I'm doing something that if I would have had better sense, I wouldn't have done. I'm going to preach back-to-back the two most obscure, difficult texts in the New Testament. Now, I could have dodged that today because we have a New Testament scholar here with us. Dr. Bill Barkley, my dear friend who's a professor at RTS, teaches New Testament, whose commentaries I use, who pastors Sovereign Grace PCA. I saw him walk in the back door today. I thought, come on, man. Help a brother out. You can do this. You've probably written on this. Well, Bill said, no, Carl, uh, I'm sorry. This task is yours. So the two most difficult texts in the New Testament are back to back. The first is verses 19 through 20. And the second is what I will perhaps even foolishly try to do next Sunday is is proclaim it. What we can't do, though, I speak in all seriousness, what we can't do is skip them as many expositors have done, since our calling is to preach the whole counsel of God. And since all scripture, all scripture, including these verses, is God-breathed and profitable for doctrine, profitable for reproof, profitable for correction, profitable for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Because of that, this text is necessary for you. Because these texts contain vital doctrinal truths. Now I realize that the discussion of the proper interpretation of the creed and now this text may seem irrelevant to some of you. But there are many ways that we demonstrate our reverence for the word of God. And one of them is the care that we take to understand it properly and apply it carefully. Every minister must be an expert in hermeneutics. Every minister must be an expert in the art and science of biblical interpretation. The goal of hermeneutics, of course, is to find the author, that would be the Holy Holy Spirit, is to find the author's intended meaning. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon preached in a sermon he preached in 1867. Spurgeon said to his congregation, You've gone into your den for your private devotions. You've opened your Bible and you begin to read. Now, do not be satisfied with merely reading through a chapter of the Bible. Some people thoughtlessly read a chapter or two or three. Spurgeon goes on. It's always better to read a little and digest it 
and understand it than it is to read much and then think you have done a good thing by merely reading the letter of the word. Spurgeon says you might as well have read the alphabet backwards and forwards as read a chapter of scripture unless you meditate on it and then comprehend its meaning. Spurgeon concludes, merely to read words is nothing. The business of the believer with his Bible open is to pray. Lord, give me the meaning of your word. While it lies open before me, lead me into the soul and marrow of your word. And we do the same thing in our creed. You notice I'm going heavy today on our doctrine. Look at page 920 of your hymnal. I want to give you a reminder about our view of hermeneutics. Not only do we have a confessional view of the creed, but once again... Every minister, elder, and deacon in a PCA congregation must subscribe to these words. If you look at page 920 and you look at Confession of Faith, chapter 1 of the Holy Scripture, section 7, it says this, and this gives me great comfort when we come to a text like this today. All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and open in some place of Scripture or others that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due use of the ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. So what is our goal? Our goal is single, meaning. That's what each of us is after. Preacher and hearer alike. Meaning, God has spoken, and so we must determine what he has said. Another way to say this is, the goal of all legitimate Bible study and hermeneutics is to apprehend the author's original intended meaning. That would be the Holy Spirit's meaning. Meaning hasn't occurred, connection hasn't occurred, until the hearer, the reader, has got an exact replica in his mind that was in the giver of revelation. Meaning, by the way, doesn't rest with the interpreter, it rests with the author. The contemporary problem right now, though, is objective meaning versus subjective significance. Since the 1920s, the Bible's been subjected to a new approach, relativism. Some of you, perhaps many or all of you, have been in Bible studies where you all open your Bibles and the leader says, what does this text mean to you. Well, it doesn't really matter what this text means to you. What matters is, what does this text mean to the author, the Holy Spirit? In poll after poll, professing evangelicals, when asked, is there such a thing as absolute truth or absolute meaning, overwhelmingly choose this answer. Different people can define truth in conflicting ways and all be correct. There's nothing more frustrating to sit in a group, a circle of people, and the leader go around and say, what does this text mean to you? This person states some crazy idea. What does it mean to you? Some other crazy idea. What does it mean to you? Some other crazy idea. And you're thinking, not only can not all of you be right, but perhaps none of you can be right. Well, what we're going to try to do for just a few minutes is we are going to ascertain meaning. Now, anybody who's done the least bit of Bible study knows that to do hermeneutics, to do interpretation, you have to do at least the following. 
You have to know the historical context, and we do. We spent a great deal of time looking at what the historical context was in 1 Peter, a church under persecution at the midpoint of the first century. You have to know the outline of the book, how the author, how he binds together his thought. You have to know the different contexts, the grammar and individual word meanings. And then you have to do something much more important. You have to plead with the Holy Spirit to guide you into all truth, knowing that Jesus has promised that he will do that. And so let me remind you where we've been. Look back at chapter 1 of 1 Peter, because it's vital that we understand how we got here. In 1 Peter chapter 1, we begin to see that Peter teaches several profound mysteries. And this upsets many people's view of Peter because they view Peter as just a, a rough, calloused hand fisherman who probably wasn't very deep. Peter has already presented us with all sorts of deep mysteries. For example, in chapter 1, verse 2, he speaks of election, God's sovereign, eternal choice of a people. Some people have gone to the insane asylum trying to wrap their head around that. And then in chapter 1, verse 3, he speaks of the new birth, that mysterious sovereign action of the Holy Spirit, whereby he removes your heart of stone and gives you a beating heart of flesh. He works heart change in you. It's called regeneration. And then in chapter 1, verse 6, Peter states that God has ordained trials for his elect. This is mysterious always to unbelievers and oftentimes to believers. Why would God do that? And then in chapter 1, verse 10 through 12, Peter states that as New Covenant believers, you have been given truths that Old Testament prophets and angels don't know. That's how profound the mysteries are that Peter's revealing. And then in chapters 2 and 3, Peter begins to set forth for you this huge overarching worldview of God's creation order. That his order for creation is submission to ordained authorities in civil government, marriage, labor. And then in chapter 3, just before our text, Peter says it again, what he already said in chapter 1. In verse 13 through 17, Peter states that great mystery. God has ordained that his elect should suffer for righteousness' sake. He's ordained that his elect should suffer for righteousness' sake. That brings us to our text. Look at verses 18 through 20. And we want to isolate three details in this text that we need to answer. The first is this. The same Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, spoken of in verse 18, empowered Jesus to go and preach. Now notice the usage and the dependence upon the Holy Spirit, moving from verse 18 to 19. <clears throat> We're told <clears throat> that Jesus was made alive by the Spirit. Then in verse 19, <clears throat> by whom, by whom, that would be the Spirit. Also, he went and preached to the spirits in prison. So there can be no objection about this first assertion. The Holy Spirit <clears throat> is the one who raised Jesus and then empowered him to go and preach. That's the simple part. Second assertion. We have to answer the question, when did this preaching occur? We're told this in verse 19 and 20. 
that Jesus went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight souls were saved through water. And then the third aspect of the text that we have to answer, and all of these piled up together, create this very difficult, thorny knot of a text. We have to answer this question in verse 19 and 20. Who were the spirits in prison? And so roll up your sleeves with me. I want you to think hard. Gird up your minds. Martin Luther stated, I keep stating that I'm in really good company. Martin Luther stated when he was about to expound this text, this is a strange text and the most obscure passage in the New Testament. And I must confess, after I've done studying, I still do not know what the Apostle Peter meant. A New Testament scholar who's writing today documents 182 possible interpretations of the text. I'm not going to treat you to all of those. But I want to give you a footnote. I have to give credit words to R.C. Sproul's outstanding book entitled Hard Sayings. I would buy it if I were you. It's going to be the best 10 bucks you spent this month. Has exegetical work that's unsurpassed. And just in case you wonder, I'm plagiarizing him completely today. Now, I want you to notice what Peter doesn't say. Look at our text very closely. Hone in on these three verses. Peter doesn't say, Jesus went and preached to dead people in hell. That's not what he says. We already rebuked that, refuted it. Peter does say, look at your text, that Jesus preached to spirits in prison. Many think that this refers to preaching to the dead because Peter uses the term spirits. We usually associate spirits with departed spirits, not living people. But the Bible uses the term spirits to refer to people who are alive. In fact, when God created Adam and Eve, he breathed into them and we are told they became a living spirit. These disobedient spirits spoken of could not be angels. For nowhere in the Bible are angels ever said to have disobeyed during the building of the ark. Notice we're talking about people who were connected with the ark building in verse 19 and 20. And there's never a hint that fallen angels have an opportunity to repent. So what is being stated here? Look, really roll up your sleeves now here. When you speak of in prison, we speak of Jesus going to those in prison in verse 19. The Bible, the New Testament at times, does... I'll grant, speak of hell in metaphorical terms with the concept of prison. For example, Jesus says in Matthew 5, agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Jesus is speaking of hell there. Metaphorically, prison. But elsewhere, repeatedly, Scripture speaks of lostness as being a prison. You remember that text when Jesus unrolled the Isaiah scroll and preached in his hometown of Nazareth, preaching from Isaiah 61, where the very messianic mission of Jesus, defined by him, was understood to be preaching to captives in prison and setting them free. Listen to what Jesus said on that day. He said, 
The Spirit of God is upon me. Now, I want you to start making connections with me. This is Jesus preaching in his hometown synagogue in Nazareth. The Spirit of God is upon me. Look at our text in verse 18 and 19. What does it say about the Spirit? That Jesus was made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. My understanding is that Jesus understood his messianic mission to be preaching to those captives in prison who were seated in front of him in the synagogue. He's going to free them. Remember what Jesus read from the Isaiah scroll? He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because God has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who were bound. When did Jesus ever talk about preaching to those in prison? That day in his hometown synagogue. He said, I'm looking out on a congregation of prisoners. You're held in bondage by sin, self, and Satan. And I'm coming to free you, to open the prison doors. So our text seems to be speaking of Jesus' mission before he took flesh when he preached through Noah. Look at verse 20. There, my contention is, the assertion is, he's speaking of when Jesus preached through Noah because we're told later in 2 Peter 2 that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. This interpretation fits the context. There's a, a close parallel between the situation of Noah and that of Peter's readers. Noah and his family were a minority surrounded by hostile unbelievers, so were Peter's readers. Noah was righteous in a wicked world, so are Peter's readers. Noah knew and preached that judgment was soon to come on the world. Peter reminds his readers of the same. Not only did Christ preach through Noah, as we would see in verse 20, our Lord was certainly preaching to prisoners during his earthly life. He was preaching in the power of the Spirit. He says so, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He was preaching to those bound by sin and Satan. He says he came to proclaim liberty to the captives. And he was releasing them from the prison house of sin. Jesus concludes by saying, reading the Isaiah scroll, the opening of the prison to those who are bound. The thrust of Peter's statement is simply this. Look back to verse 18 through 20. <clears throat> is that Jesus was raised from the dead by the power of the same Holy Spirit that enabled him to preach to spirits in prison the children of Noah and the seed of Abraham. We need to hold on to a couple of things tenaciously that are takeaways from this text. Everything that was required for our redemption was performed by Christ. There's nothing yet remaining. That's the problem with all views of the creed and all views of this text that says, uh, Jesus is going to purgatory. Jesus is still preaching, giving second, third, and tenth chances. He's still suffering in the mass. No. The first thing that we need to hold on tenaciously to is everything required for our redemption was performed by Christ. It's finished. We also need to recognize what this text is saying about us. All of us, before the gospel comes to us, 
all of us, apart from the saving work of Christ, are prisoners, lost souls, in need of release and redemption. The only one who has power to release us is Christ. He holds the keys. And he does that through the same power of the Holy Spirit by which he was raised from the dead.